we do need. I'm not trying to take them away as needs. But when they falter or they fail, we always have the security, if we're building our house on the rock, that we can look to and turn to Christ. Now, that's typically the message of this passage, and it's true, and it's real, and it needs to be preached, and it needs to be understood. But I want you to look a little deeper than that. I want you to look at the type of idolatry that they're actually practicing here. I'm going to read verses 2 to 5 again, because they're just really so important. Aaron answered them, saying, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, so there's a connection here with Yahweh. They're actually not completely saying this is not Yahweh. In fact, they're sort of using the word gods here, but they're using that to represent whatever God it was that brought him out of Egypt. So they're connecting this God to the God of Yahweh. And if, that, if you don't believe that, look at the next verse. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival. You see that capitalized word Lord in your Bible? That's the word Yahweh. So they're making this calf as an image, a graven image of Yahweh. They're not worshipping other gods so much as worshipping an image of Yahweh which they've made in the form of a cow. Now this is really, really important for us to realise. So the question, what's really going on here, is that they're practising what I would call orthodox idolatry. Orthodox idolatry. This is not intentional idolatry. This is idolatry. This is not them saying, you know what? I think I care more about my bank balance than the church. That's not what's going on here. The question that's being asked of them without them even realizing it is, what would you like God to look like? How can we create an orthodox graven image of Yahweh? The answer they give, of course, is we'd like God to look like a God that gives us security. And guess what gods the biggest nations around them had at the time? Baal. And so Baal was this big pagan god of fertility. The cow was connected to him. All of those sort of things are there. And they say, we'd like Yahweh to look like Baal. And we'd like to practice our religion like those Baals did. They're not abandoning Yahweh. They're just watering him down culturally to look like they want him to look because that's going to work for them. So the answer is we like a god that gives us the security that we want right now. We'd like a guy that looks like Baal. What do you think the prosperity gospel is? What do you think it is? It's simply the gospel watered down to make it look like a golden calf. It's, and in fact, when we do that ourselves, which we do in so many ways, we're simply applying the prosperity gospel to the real gospel. We're looking at how we can make the real gospel make us feel secure. He's not breaking the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods but me. He's breaking the second commandment. Do not create graven images of me. Do you think we have that problem in the church today? God doesn't send anyone to hell. God doesn't need to, me to be part of the church. My God doesn't have moral, civil or worship 
laws anymore. And I know what you're saying. Don't we have a right to our own opinions here, to our own religious opinions? Yeah, you absolutely have the right to your own religious opinion. Just don't pretend you're worshipping Yahweh. This, by the way, is the Yahweh who created, because I'm using this illustration, because Moses himself uses it with God about the stars in the sky. This is Yahweh who created two trillion observable galaxies, 200 billion trillion stars that we can sort of see with some sort of telescope. And I don't even know what these numbers mean, but 10 to the 25 planets that go around stars and 10 to the 30 planets that have sort of lost their star and are just floating somewhere in the galaxy. And you want to get a picture of a golden cow, you want to manufacture a cow and say, this represents that God. There's an absurdity to it, right? Let me ask you, what sort of Bible do you have? Many of you probably remember those red letter Bibles where you'd open them up and you find the letters of Jesus in them. Unfortunately, the reality is most of us metaphorically have red pen Bibles where we open the Bible and we say, you know what? I don't really like that verse. Scratch, scratch. Mm, not so sure about that. Scratch, scratch. Oh, that piece of God doesn't really appeal to me. Scratch, scratch. Do you have a red letter Bible or do you have a red pen Bible? We must submit to who God tells us he is. No graven images. We cannot make God according to our own personal tastes. No graven images. There is no security, may I point out, in making God understandable or fathomable or containable or imaginable. It would be terrifying to think of God, a God that was actually capable of being like us. Now, I want you to note this, right? The God who created the universe, he walks the pages of Scripture. The God who created the universe walks the pages of Scripture. And he walks those pages with the intention of meeting you. Not your graven image of his, which you can do really well with your philosophical constructs to create a picture that really works. No, he meets you in his Scripture to tell you who he is. Now, we were created to be dependent. There is nothing wrong with a desire for security. It's God-given. We have a God-given desire for security. And so I have for you a wonderful investment opportunity. I'm going to give you two different choices of how you can invest to be secure. You can walk those pages too to make and meet, to meet the creator of the universe, or you can invest your time in making more sacred cows. Which is the good investment choice? What do you have? A red letter Bible, a red pen Bible, or a Bible that's so covered in dust that you don't even know what colors the letters inside are. Let's move on from the idolatrous people to the interceding person. God speaks to Moses and he says, the people have become corrupt. And he doesn't really mince his words here, does he? In verses 6 to 10, let me read them to you. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, 7 to 10, sorry, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They become quick to turn away from what I have commanded them, made themselves an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. They've bound down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that I may, so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I'll make you, Moses, into a great nation. Now these are the same people I'd like to, oh, so, so basically what's going on here is God pronounces a just judgment. He pronounces a just judgment on the people. Red letter Bible. You may not like it, but it's red letter Bible. He pronounces a just, and we can talk about that at a different time. He then says, and this is the piece I really want to pull out, verse 10b, where he turns to Moses and uh, he says, then I will make you into a great nation. He's basically saying, you and me, Moses, let's do it without them. I'll make you into a great nation. Forget those corrupt, God-defying, adulterous, stiff-necked people. They're more trouble than they're worth, Moses. You and me, let's do it together. And by the way, these are the people that last week put Moses on trial. They grumbled and they've complained. Remember at the burning bush? All Moses was about was excuses. They won't believe me. I'm not a good enough talker. I'm not interested in your plan, God. Pick somebody else. Just remember last week when Carl was preaching. What am I to do with these people? They want to stone me. God gives Moses an out clause. Actually, even better than an out clause, it's a golden parachute. Moses is given a soft option. Let me read it to you again. Then I will make you, Moses, you and me, into a great nation. Forget those corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, stick-neck people, Moses. Take the soft option, Moses. They're more trouble than they're worth. And let me ask you this. What would the prosperity gospel say to do with respect to that, right? The real gospel in this case, you can just abandon Lots of the pieces that go with the prosperity gospel. God is giving him the option. What does Moses do? You see, first thing he does is he prays for them. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? So he's about to pray for them. He intercedes for them. Let's look carefully at this prayer because there are three pieces to it that we need to be really careful about observing. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Okay, whose glory is Moses interested in here? God's. Turn your face, your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Forgive them, your glory, your character. And then finally, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. 
I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all the land that I have promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Your covenant promises, your glory, your character to forgive and have mercy and to restore, your covenant promises. Do what is consistent with your covenant promises. Honestly, it reminds me of baptism. If you're ever wondering what you should do with your baptism, you should be thinking the same thing. God, I think about my baptism. I'm a mess. I've done terrible things. I'm a hopeless person. Your glory. It's about your glory. You're bigger than my mess-ups. It's about your promises to forgive, your mercy, your character, and your covenant promises to me. What's happening here? Did Moses change God's mind? Narratively speaking, yes. Now, to all of you theologians out there who right now are having a minor conniption fit, we experience God narratively. Prayer matters. It makes a difference. Are you praying for the lost or... Are you avoiding the corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, stiff-necked people that are more troubled than they're worth? Are you avoiding them not just in the way you engage with the world, but are you avoiding them in prayer? Are you avoiding them in prayer as well? Prayer matters. It makes a difference. Second thing he does is he connects with them. Now, we didn't read verses 15 to 29, but it's really, really messy. Moses goes down there. And he says, look, which ones of you are for Yahweh? Which ones of you are doing this Aaron calf thing? They divide in half. There's a bit of a bloodbath. But don't forget, both those who stay with the golden calf and those who come with Aaron, they're all guilty. So even after the consequences are meted out, even after the judgment, and God in his foresight knows which was which, and that judgment was just, red letter Bible, the ones that remain with Moses are just as guilty. So he doesn't just connect with them administratively. He's also incredibly connected with them emotionally. He values them over himself. And those last verses that uh, Rob read out are so important for us to hear. The next day, after, Moses, after what had happened, Moses said to his people, you have committed a great sin. This is not everybody. This is the ones who come back to him and already administer justice, right? So those who had repented, they've still committed a great sin. It's not like, oh, who's with me? Who's against me? No. Everyone has committed a great sin. You've committed a great sin. But now I will go to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. Listen to this. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. Blot me out of the book that you have written. Moses is now seeing these people as God has always seen them. And he's articulating it to himself. For those theologians who had a bit of a conniption fit before, Prayer is also changing Moses, okay? That'll keep the theologians happy. All right. So Moses, one man who turns back judgment on those he has begun to come to love. 
These are the ones that judges him, that have grumbled against him, that he didn't want to have anything to do with at all. He's come to a place where he loves them. Intercessory prayer and real practical and emotional engagement, it's sacrificial and it's hard. Look out the windows. Look out the windows for a minute. Do you see Denver's? Do you see the North Shore? Do you see Gloucester? Do you see those places through God's eyes? Are you willing to pray sacrificially? Are you willing to connect sacrificially with God's lost family out there? Or are those corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, stiff-necked people not worth the trouble? Now, there's a soft option here too, right? Which may be more appealing to you. You see, we all have a saving faith in God. Or, and we can just sort of wait, right? We can just sort of wait because the coming kingdom will come and God will sort it all out. We believe that as Presbyterians, right? And so it's all going to work out okay. So we can just do nothing. We can sit in our sort of comfortable, sort of avoidant, don't really want to deal with those people, could be ugly, could be hard, but we could do nothing right? But you know what we're missing out on if we do that? We're missing out on one day in God's courts. And that is worth a thousand elsewhere. Why would you choose such a small, shallow option when you can choose to have God present with you as you walk out bringing his message into that? The prosperity gospel applied to the real gospel will say that. Circle the wagons. Hide. Don't engage. It's messy out there. You don't have to love them. Just train yourself to think of them as corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, stiff-necked people that are not worth the trouble. That's not what Moses did, which sort of brings us to our conclusion. Pray and connect. These are tangible things, tangible things. You want things to change? Pray. It changes things. But guess what? Prayer, it takes time and it takes energy. Prayer in itself is sacrificial. And they won't happen if you're consumed with building graven images of security. There is a town and a country, there is our family, both biologically who are lost, and there's our church family out there whom we can look at in two ways. The corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, thick-necked people that are more trouble than they're worth, or we can look at the world with tears in our eyes because we love them the way God loves them. Now, how do we get to a place where we love them like God loves them? It is not a sustainable proposition to do that through teeth-gritting stoic religious practices. Now, I am all for rhythms and practicing, uh, and practice which is a good. But how did Moses do it? Well, Moses, one man who turned back judgment on those he had come to love. As we think about Moses, does that remind us of anyone? Does it make us think of anyone as we describe him in that way? Moses offered to be blotted out with God's people. We read that in verses 30 to 32. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. It's me with them. I identify with them, God. If you blot them out, you blot me out. Jesus was able to offer to be blotted out instead of God's people, instead of us. 
Jesus could have said, forget those corrupt, God-defying, idolatrous, stiff-necked people. They're more trouble than they're worth. Now, in Moses' case, if you look back at his own life, he'd know he'd also be describing himself. That was not true in the case of Jesus. But Jesus instead said, not my will, but your will be done. Do what brings you glory, God. Forgive them, restore them. Do what is consistent with your covenant promises. Jesus made the ultimate connection with us, God becoming human and was willing to be blotted out for our sins and now continues to intercede in prayer for us. Now, when you get that, when you get how God sees you, you'll start to see our lost church family out there as he sees them with tears in your eyes and a heart to find them and bring them back as prodigals into God's family. Praying for and connecting with. There are a lot of insecure people out there trusting in graven images that are going to fail. Go out there and give them the hope and the security that they need and you know. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for how you changed Moses' heart. How he went from the most reluctant to willing to be blooded out, to so identifying with his people, so loving his people, that he couldn't not see you save them. And Father, we thank you that as we see what Jesus did for us, that he was willing to be blooded out, that he stood before you and said, I don't have to go down there. I don't have to connect with them, but he did. He humbled himself to be connected. He said, I don't have to go to that cross, but he did. Your glory, your character, your covenant promises. Father, help us to be faithful, not to use the, uh, to apply the prosperity gospel to the real gospel. Help us to have hearts that look with tears in our eyes and want to go out and love and serve on your behalf, inviting people to know your gracious character, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.